Imagine two people in your family who you love most. Now imagine one of them murders the other. There must be punishment, but would you prefer execution? What if that person was your only remaining child? Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. Today, we're talking about the Whitaker family from Texas. The father, Kent, he managed his own construction company that was quite a successful multi-generational family business. Kent married a woman named Patricia, known to her friends and family as Trish, and she'd worked as an elementary school teacher. Kent and Trish had two boys, Thomas Bartlett Whitaker, who was born on New Year's Eve in 1979 and went by Bart, an abbreviated version of his middle name. And then his little brother Kevin came along five years later in 1984. Owning his own construction company, it seems that Mr. Whitaker was doing pretty all, all right for himself. The family seems to be, you know, they were living well down in Sugarland, Texas. During Bart's high school years at Clements High School, his parents bought him nice cars and provided what seems like a very comfortable, if not luxurious, lifestyle. After graduation, he went off to Baylor University in 2001. Baylor is located in Waco, Texas, and is about a three-hour drive from Sugarland. Bart would later transfer to Sam Houston State University, which was only about an hour and a half north of Sugarland, where his family was. Then in December 2003, Bart told his parents that he had completed his last finals and was all set to graduate from Sam Houston. So like people after my own heart, his parents took their boys out for a meal to celebrate. The Whitaker family went out to a place called Papado Restaurant in Stafford on December 10th, 2003. You know, my eating experience in Houston is a little bit varied. One time I had some folks take me to a Vietnamese restaurant and I'd never eaten that before. There's some kind of sauce they got there that you want to be very careful with. I just have to say. And then another time I went to a place that serves uh, these hamburgers called Hot Bobs, which was fitting. I was into it. You know, having a hot bob, eating a hot bob. What the heck? But I thought it was odd because they also, you could get that in a uh, regular old cow burger or, or you could have it in emu if you wanted. And I don't, I wasn't really in, into the emu stuff. I've never seen an emu that I thought looked like it would taste good. Yeah, I, I sort of passed on that. But anyway, so what? I've never heard of this Pappy Doos. What's that all about? Yeah, so it's a seafood joint with a southern flair, kind of like a hot bob eating a hot bob. They've got some Cajun Creole influence, just like you. Oh, for anybody that didn't, I said Houston. Sugarland is a suburb of Houston, so we're in the same vicinity there. Thank you for the geography for those playing along at home. Now, before they left for the restaurant, Trish and Kent gave Bart a graduation gift, a Rolex. I didn't get, did you get a Rolex? I, I did not get a Rolex for graduating from anything. If I did get a Rolex, it'd have two L's in it. <laughs> I was going to say, the closest I ever got was a Folex. Now, when the Wedekers made it back home to the upscale Sugar Lake subdivision, Kevin, who was 19 at the time, jumped out of the driver's seat and marched toward his parents' house so that he could unlock the front door. He must have had a poop. I mean, you know, they went to the seafood joint as hopping Creole Cajun. He might have forgot to take his gas X. It's possible. Well, I mean, you said he jumped out of the driver's seat and marched. That sounds like I got to go. Uh, I... It's understandable. I get it. And Patricia was walking up with Kevin, but Kent had slowed down to walk with Bart, who told his father he'd be right up, but had to go grab his cell phone from his SUV, which was parked out on the street. They went to this restaurant in the family's, uh, in, in Kent and Trisha's car. And so Bart's like, hey, you know, I got to grab my phone. I'll be right up. As Kevin walked through the front door, 
He'd just opened and moved into the dining room. He was shot in the chest, the keys falling from his hands. They landed next to drops of blood, his blood that had stained the carpet, marking a spot where the gunman's bullet had ripped through his heart. Next, Trish, who was walking just behind Kevin, was shot in the chest as she walked through the door. As the two lay dying on the floor, Kent caught a bullet in his chest on the left side and it lodged in his shoulder, and he was standing on the front porch at the time. Now, Bart was the last in line to enter his parents' home, as he had went to grab his cell phone, and he was shot in the arm and told police later on that he was wounded as he struggled with the shooter. Patricia was life-flighted to Memorial Hermann Hospital, but later died from her wounds. Kent and Bart were taken to the hospital, and they both survived. As Kent lay in a hospital bed, knowing that his whole family had just been gunned down, thinking about what had happened and who could do something like this, he told the Washington Post, All I could feel for this person was an incredibly deep and powerful hatred, just thinking about how I could inflict pain on him. But Kent was a Christian, and he turned to his faith while he laid in that bed, struggling to come to grips with what had taken place. While he felt this understandable rage, he also began to recall Bible verses. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. These verses flooded his thoughts. Revenge was a dark path Kent did not want to walk, so he resolved to forgive the shooter. In the hospital bed, it seemed impossible, but Kent would do it, no matter who was responsible, and he made that clear from the very beginning. He had already forgiven whoever had murdered his family. Back at the crime scene, Kevin, Bart's little brother, had his heart pierced by the bullet that struck him, so he was pronounced dead immediately, and his body remained there while Sugarland police processed all of the evidence. A Glock 9mm handgun was recovered on the kitchen floor. It was near the back door where the shooter had left the scene, and both Kent and Bart told police that the gunman was dressed in black clothing and had a ski mask on, but Kent told investigators that he could see the person wearing the mask had white skin around the eye hole of the ski mask. The responding officers and detectives almost immediately believed that somebody had attempted to make it look like a burglary had taken place inside the residence. Several computers and expensive audio and video equipment were untouched, and valuable jewelry was found laying in plain view. In the first floor master bedroom, all of the dresser drawers and side tables had been opened about two inches, but none of the contents had been disturbed. A pillowcase was found lying on the floor next to the bed. The only fingerprints detectives found in the residence belonged to the Whitakers. Perhaps even more odd than the stage burglary, the intruder somehow knew to enter a built-out crawlspace in Kevin's bedroom on the second floor to find a small metal gun safe and then pried it open. Whoever did this left blue paint on the safe where the metal was dented to gain entry, and they took out the 9mm Glock that was kept inside. And this was the same 9mm Glock that was used to shoot each of the Whitakers. The murder weapon belonged to Kevin, and it had been a gift from Bart. Six rounds of Corbon ammunition, that's a brand, were found in the Glock's magazine, and the four shell casings recovered from the residence were also from Corbon rounds. No other Corbon ammunition was found in the residence, although Kevin had other brands of ammunition for the handgun. When the on-call detective, who assumed the lead of the investigation, arrived at the Whitaker residence, he was led to a man's black leather glove lying on the curb next to Bart's SUV. Apparently, when he saw it, he thought, not another OJ, and ordered the glove collected for processing. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. As police continued processing the scene and investigating, a deputy from the Fort Bend County Sheriff's Department arrived with his nationally recognized scent-discriminating bloodhounds, Quincy, Colombo, and James Bond. Yeah, those are some pretty cool names for the dogs. <laughs> but back to the robbery thing and those drawers being open a couple inches, that just baffles me how criminals think they can be smart when and not even have a clue what they're doing. I mean, when somebody is burglarizing, they're going to start at the bottom and work their way up. And they're not going to worry about closing drawers 
at all, much less having them be like all neatly two inches open. They got to yank a drawer, rifle, nothing I want, pull the next drawer and, and move right on along. So, but no, let's just go pull everything out two inches at a time. It's just such an amateur thing to do. Yeah. And not disturb any of the contents. Right. So God bless stupid criminals or we probably wouldn't have anything to talk about here yeah, other know. than a bunch of unsolved cases. That's right. Each of the three bloodhounds tracked from the rear of the residence where detectives learned that the gunman had fled to Bart's SUV parked on the street in front of the house. The investigators created scent swabs from the black glove, the murder weapon, the dresser drawers that were in the master bedroom, the pillowcase, and the damaged gun safe in Kevin's room. They did this because uh, the thought was these were things or items that they were fairly certain that whoever had been in the house and who had done the shooting had touched. And so they hoped that potentially the dogs could be used to lead them to whoever this was who had touched these items. And the evidence in the case was telling a story. And initially, the incomplete story was a confusing one. Investigators knew something was off, but needed more information to connect the dots. It wouldn't take long for helpful information to start pouring in. In fact, things became a lot clearer only two days after the shootings, on December 12, 2003. That's when a detective received a phone call from a source who had told the detective that Bart wasn't about to graduate from Sam Houston State University because he was not even enrolled and hadn't attended the school for quite some time. After receiving this information, police were able to confirm the tip by obtaining Bart's school transcripts with grand jury subpoenas. When Bart was confronted with what the police had learned, Bart told the police and his dad why he had told Trish that he wasn't graduating, but she was the only one that he had told about this. So the source in that was a newspaper reporter who was doing, or in, I don't know if it was newspaper or TV, that was kind of doing the background, all that stuff they tell you in the story, sort of about the characters that are involved and what's going on. And I recall him saying he about dropped the phone because he's just doing his, you know, what program of study is he in, that kind of thing, the basic stuff. And they're like, no, we, we ain't got no Bart Whitaker. <laughs> He'll go here. And I said, new phone who did? <laughs> right. And he was very surprised. Now, as far as this silliness that, well, you know, I told mom, uh, bullshit. Just straight up code brown bullshit on that one. Okay, I could see that maybe he confided in mom that he's got this issue. He's not graduating and doesn't want to tell dad yet. I, that's plausible. That could make sense. What does not make sense to me is mom is not going to sit there through a celebratory meal and the handing over a Rolex in the midst of a lie. That does that no freaking way. Doesn't pass the smell test. And it's awful convenient that the one he says he told happens to be dead by his own doing. Hmm. A few days later, a Dallas bank teller named Adam Hip wandered into the Sugarland Police Department requesting to speak with the, de the detective on the case. Hip went to high school with Bart. And he told the detective that two years before, in the spring of 2001, Bart had talked to him about a plan to kill the Whitaker family so that Bart could inherit his parents' share of the family construction business. If that's not crazy enough, what Hip told the detectives next is bonkers. Hip drew the detective a diagram of the Whitaker house and detailed how Bart was going to get the family out of the house by taking them to dinner, but he would leave the door unlocked so that Hip could enter while the house was empty. Bart's roommate from Baylor was supposed to bring a pistol down from Waco to give to Hip to use as the murder weapon. Now back to the diagram, Hip also drew a stick figure representing the shooter in the dining room and three stick figure bodies in the front foyer. He told the detectives that Bart's plan included being shot in the arm in an effort to avoid police scrutiny, and he would be the sole heir to the family's estate, which police estimated to be approximately $1.5 million. Now, this is all wild, right? And you know who police immediately suspected might be the shooter. Yeah, the hip dude who just drew him the map on how to kill the Whitaker family. Bingo. Detectives suspected Hip could be the shooter and is just trying to get out from under this or get ahead of it, but they were able to verify that Hip was at work late the night of December 10th. 
he was at the bank, he was working, and it was so far away that it, it just, it was essentially an ironclad alibi. The timeline, everything checked out. It was all documented, you know, because he works at a bank. And so he was eliminated as a suspect. Now, working off this information from HIP, police tracked down Bart's roommate from Baylor, a guy named Justin Peters, who is now living in San Antonio. When police interviewed Peters, he came right out and admitted to his participation in the plot that Hip had described, which had been planned to take place on April 5th, 2001. Peters told detectives that Bart had actually recruited him and another Baylor student, Will Anthony, to kill the Whitaker family even earlier in December of 2000, but that plot had failed too. Both times, Bart's motive for murder was to inherit the family's estate. Right, and what's even crazier is how these earlier plans were ultimately foiled. The first one went sideways after it got shared with too many people. Loose lips sink ships, as Tupac said. That's right. But the second guy scrapped after Kent and Trish found out about it. In 2001, they found out that he had this plan to kill them. Can you even imagine? Hmm. Turning back to the present, in December 2003, Bart was sharing his townhouse with a 21-year-old man named Chris Brashear. Bart worked with Chris at the Bentwater Country Club. Sounds like a place I wouldn't be allowed in. I, I think that's probably accurate. <laughs> You're more of the hot bob kind. Right. A couple doors down from them lived a guy named Stephen Champagne. Fancy name. Bart got, had gotten Stephen a bartending job at Bentwater. Both Stephen and Chris were interviewed by Sugarland detectives and agreed to submit scent and DNA samples. You remember those world-famous bloodhounds? Yeah, John, Paul, George, and Ringo. That's exactly right. Well, the detectives set up a scent lineup. You ever heard of one of these? Not until this case. Yeah, same here. Uh, where So essentially, they gave the dogs a scent and then have these items that they collected these scent samples from uh, in unmarked identical paint can containers that are kind of numbered and spread apart. And so they wait and see, you know, the dogs go and they sniff all the paint cans. And if one of these is a, is an, is a match, then the dog is supposed to alert, you know, they have a, whether they sit down, lay down, whatever they indicate that, oh yeah, this is that same, same person, same scent. When they did the scent lineup, the bloodhounds indicated that Chris had come in contact with the glove, the murder weapon, that Glock, drawers in the master bedroom, and the gun safe where the murder weapon was removed. Oh, damn. Now, Bart's old buddy Hip, the one who had been involved in planning the earlier murder plots that never happened, retained an attorney and negotiated a non-prosecution agreement for his role in that April 2001 conspiracy in exchange for continued cooperation with investigators. And in case you're wondering, well, yeah, okay, they talked about it, but, you know, he never actually killed anybody. At least it doesn't sound like it so far. Yeah, that's still illegal. So don't conspire with people. That will get you in trouble. Now, he agreed, this Hip guy agreed to assist police by contacting Bart and recording conversations. Detectives met with Hip prior to each conversation and scripted the direction they wanted him to take the conversation. Hip initially told Bart that Sugarland police contacted him and were traveling to Dallas to interview him. In subsequent conversations, Hip mentioned details about the failed 2001 conspiracy and the similarities to the actual murders. Now, here's where it gets a little spicy for old Bart. Bart agreed to pay Hip $20,000 to lie to the police about Bart's involvement in the 2001 conspiracy. A Dallas post office box was set up in Hip's name to receive the payment, and a Highland Park police detective agreed to monitor the box and maintain chain of custody for any evidence that might be mailed to it. And lo and behold, on April 1st, 2004, a FedEx mailer was received containing $240 in cash. The return address was from a K. Sos. Real covert, right? Not so much. The mailer had Bart's Willis, Texas residence as the return address. <laughs> And as it turned out, one of Bart's favorite movies, The Usual Suspects, featured a villain with the name Kaiser Soze, 
a criminal mastermind who walked away from police investigators after committing an elaborate murder. Bart often quoted uh, the movie's closing line to his friends, and it goes like this. The greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world he didn't exist. Also, Bart's fingerprints were all over the mailer. Then on June 28, 2004, Bart Whitaker's SUV was found abandoned with the engine running at an apartment complex in southwest Houston. At that time, Bart was working as a waiter at the Hotel Icon in downtown Houston. You ever stay there? No. Okay, that's probably good. It turns out he had disappeared to avoid capture. He knew that the police were on to him. In June 2005, detectives worked with the Fort Bend County District Attorney's Office to prepare an application for wiretaps on Stephen and Chris's cell phones. The suspects hadn't been talking for a while, which frustrated law enforcement's efforts. Bart's whereabouts were unknown. Stephen, after graduating from Marine Intelligence School, that's right, he had joined the United States Marine Corps, had been reassigned to Camp Pendleton in California. And Chris was in Houston. Detectives regularly monitored their cell phone records, but there was no evidence they were calling each other. In August 2005, investigators obtained a wiretap. Sugarland detectives worked double shifts monitoring Chris and Stevens' phone calls, actively listening on their conversations. And though the suspects were not in communication with each other, the grand jury subpoenas sparked conversations with other friends and relatives. Sugarland police served a number of grand jury subpoenas after relevant phone conversations, including one to Stevens' girlfriend, the day before police learned that she was going to fly to California to visit him. Police also conducted alternating overt and covert surveillance on Chris as they monitored his conversations. Then on August 28, 2005, nearly two years after the shooting that killed Trish and Kevin, police got the break they had been working for. Stephen Champagne met one of the detectives at a Starbucks. Stephen had reached a breaking point and indicated that he wanted to tell police what he knew. He initially told the detective that he unwittingly helped Chris Brashear drive away from the Whitaker home on December 10th. He indicated that he, he didn't know of the murders in advance, but only helped to dispose of some of the evidence in Lake Conroe after the shootings took place. Stephen failed a polygraph test and was subsequently informed that any offer of immunity was now off the table. Wait, the dumbass did a polygraph and did all his talking like before, like as a way to get immunity? That's what, uh, yeah. Genius. Great. Yes, not you know. What'd you say earlier? Dumb criminals. Yeah, thank thank yeah. thank God for dumb criminals. Not for the crimes they commit, but for the fact that they do stupid things and get caught. Right. Now, the following day, Stephen Champagne was scheduled to appear before the Fort Bend County Grand Jury after an all-day meeting with the detective slot on the case and FBI agent Jim Walsh. Stephen gave a videotaped confession implicating himself, Bart, and Chris Brashear in the murders of Trish and Kevin Whitaker. Stephen took detectives to the spot on the bridge where he and Chris had thrown a bag containing items used in the crime into Lake Conroe. Arrest warrants were sought for Bart, Chris, and Stephen. Chris and Stephen were arrested, but Bart was nowhere to be found. On September 14, 2005, a man who would identify himself on the phone only as Mike Jones called detectives. Jones told them that he knew Bart was in Mexico because Bart had paid him $3,000 to drive him there. The caller later was identified as... You want to help me with that? You're the one with the pronunciation. I wanted to kind of hear you do this one because you botched up Kaiser Sose pretty bad. No, how would you say it? Kaiser Sose. What did I say? Sose. Oh, whatever. Sorry. Wait, he's fictitious. I don't feel bad. But this guy, he's a real person. So I kind of... This is Rogelio Rios. Yeah, that's... You did a great job. So this is a guy Bart worked with at the Hotel Icon. So investigators learned that Bart was living with Rios' father in Mexico and then had fled to Monterey, Mexico, to avoid capture, and it was basically trying to find work and, and just survive there. 
Bart was finally tracked down and arrested without incident as he appeared for a, what he thought was a, job interview at a Monterey restaurant on September 22nd, 2005. Now, not long after that, dri- uh, drivers, not drivers, divers searching Lake Conroe recovered a canvas bag containing some items from the crime that Chris and Stephen had discarded. Now, I mean, if there's a theme in this, stupid criminals could certainly be one of them because specifically the bag contained a dust buster, which is like a mini vacuum in case you don't know, that was used to clean the getaway vehicle, a metal pry tool used to open the gun safe, which left behind paint that matched the tool, a water bottle that forensic examiners were able to recover Chris Bashir's DNA from the threads under the cap because he had taken a drink from it, and several Corbon 9mm bullets, the exact same kind that were used to murder Trish and Kevin. In December 2005, the Fort Bend district attorney publicly announced that he would seek the death penalty for Bart Whitaker. Now, the death penalty is pretty popular in Texas, so that's not surprising. But Yeehaw. we got to talk about that a, a little bit here. Bart is obviously a bag of shit, and deep frying his turkey wouldn't bother me one bit. But there was somebody really important in this case who was, pardon the pun, dead set against Bart getting the death penalty. And that was his dad, Kent. He was the only victim of the crime who survived and also a victim in the way that his wife and son had been murdered. So he's like a triple victim in all this. And he begged the DA's office not to go for the death penalty. But despite his pleas, the DA pressed on planning to put Bart to death. Yeah. And it wasn't like Bart was protesting his innocence. He was willing to enter a deal where he would plead guilty, avoid trial, and serve a life sentence. So I think that's worth pointing out too. Because, you know, if, if if the defendant isn't willing to take a plea, then there's not really anything that the DA could do. And it would, it would almost make sense then to go for the max. But in this instance, Bart was willing to deal for, for the, the state to avoid the expense and everything of a trial, and he would avoid the death penalty. But the state, the DA here just said, no dice. There was no way out of a conviction for this, even if he tried to go to trial. Right. And I mean, in the beginning, I also want to say that Kent's wanting not to have Bart put to death, it wasn't out of being naive. In the beginning, the police and investigators and everybody had a really had a hard time convincing Kent that this really was Bart, even despite this earlier attempt that he knew about, because Bart had convinced him that was all a big joke or a big misunderstanding. And Kent is obviously a very loving and loyal guy to the end. But even once he understood that this really happened, that it was his son that that was behind all this, even then he did not want him to be put to death for it. Right. And and this presented some interesting challenges for the prosecutor in the case. Besides the three co-defendants, the only witness to the offense was Bart's dad, Kent. Although he was cooperative and forthcoming with law enforcement, Kent was and and remains, like Bob said, just vehemently opposed to Bart being put to death for killing his wife and only other son. And it wasn't like Kent was, you know, delusional. While while it took him some time to come to grips with it, you know, he had no issues with his son being punished, even serving a life sentence for what he had done. He just didn't want to see Bart put to death, losing the only immediate family member he had left. And what makes the DA's decision to seek the death penalty in Bart's case is that he didn't pursue the death penalty for the man who actually pulled the trigger, Chris Brashear. The reasoning behind this decision was that the DA's office felt like the facts of the case and what they knew about Stephen and Chris, that neither would have committed a violent crime without Bart's influence. A plea bargain agreement was reached with Stephen for 15 years in prison to the lower charge of murder in exchange 
for his cooperation in the prosecutions of Bart and Chris. And remember the guys from the prior murder plots, they had already worked out immunity agreements. These were with Hip, Anthony, and Peters to secure their cooperation during the police investigation. Now, looking forward to the trial, the first person called to the stand was actually Kent. He described the execution of his wife and youngest son and then being shot himself. I can't imagine. This man watched his whole family get shot. He's shot. They die. He's in the hospital alongside his son, who's the only family he has left, finds out he's the one behind it. You got to testify at his trial to send him to, I don't know, the electric chair, the firing squad or whatever they do in Texas, which he doesn't agree with, but he believes in the truth of no, you know, what happened. He knows the truth and he believes in punishment and justice. What a horrible position for that man to be in. Yeah. And while this is all going on, we get to see a glimpse of what I personally think shows just a kind of entitled selfishness that Bart had, what ultimately drove him to try to murder his whole family for his parents' money. During trial, a recorded jail call was played where Bart expressed frustration or perhaps even anger that his attorney had sent an associate, like a, a newer or lower level attorney within the firm, to court to sit in on some proceeding, telling his father, quote, we're not paying for legal aid here. Bart further stated that he wanted the, quote, big guns in court for his next appearance. That, it's just unbelievable that, that at this stage and given all the things he had done, that he's still making demands and just shows this entitled attitude. On the third day of trial, the state called Stephen to testify. He detailed how he met and became friends with uh, Bart in the spring of 2003. Stephen also testified that Bart frequently told him and others that he was an orphan and that Stephen was like the brother he never had, which I'm pretty sure maybe you've said that to people. So I don't know how weird that is, but. Given our age difference, I, for a long time, would forget, and I would just, I would talk about you as my parents' other child. That's fair. I mean, I usually just say I'm an only child, so that's going to be weird if you ever turn up dead. <laughs> right. But, uh, yeah, uh, moving on along. In late summer 2003, Bart started joking to Stephen and Chris about wanting his family killed, which I, I guess that's something you joke about. I don't know. That I have never done. And it was like he was saying this as a way to gauge their reaction, to just see how they would respond to it. And after teasing the idea without any serious issues from the two, in September 2003, Bart asked Stephen to shoot his family when they returned from some function that Bart would invent to get his family out of their house. The matter was discussed several times, and Stephen testified that he eventually confronted Bart publicly, hoping that making a scene would get Bart to leave him alone. But not long after that, Chris was invited to move into Bart's townhome. Stephen told the jury that he finally agreed to be the getaway driver after Bart told him that he was already guilty of conspiracy to commit the crime. Bart told his parents that he would be graduating from Sam Houston in December. The celebration for finishing college would provide the perfect opportunity to get his family out of the house. What he was supposedly studying was criminal justice, right? I, yeah, that's my understanding. Okay. That was the cover story. And he was going to graduate, uh, what, like... Some kind of honors. With honors. Yeah, yeah, I forget which one he made up, but it was one of those, you know, like uh, cum laude or whatever. Yeah, and I, I can't say any of those Latin things, otherwise it sounds like I'm referring to some kind of porno titles. Stephen testified that Bart had an argument with his father the day before the murders were first to occur. Kent had told Bart that he couldn't make it to dinner the following night, which temporarily foiled the plan. But on the day of the murders, Bart, Stephen, and Chris headed to Sugarland around 4 o'clock. Bart and Chris rode in Bart's SUV several minutes ahead of Stephen. Now remember, the, the, the Whitakers lived in a nice upscale neighborhood. Their gated community had a security camera at the front gate, and Bart had warned the others that police could retrieve that footage. Stephen knew that the Whitaker family would be eating at the Papado restaurant in Stafford, so he parked in the back parking lot with a view of the family's vehicle 
waiting for them to emerge. Once they did, Stephen followed the vehicle as it left the restaurant and until they pulled into their driveway. Following Bart's instructions, Stephen parked his vehicle in front of the house that was directly behind the Whitaker's residence. Not long after that, Chris appeared and jumped into Stephen's back seat. As they drove out of the neighborhood, Chris detailed the murders to Stephen. Chris stated that Kevin smiled at him as he pointed the Glock at his chest and fired, shooting him in the heart. Chris had inadvertently taken Bart's cell phone from the scene. He'd also taken a wad of cash that Kent kept in the master bedroom closet which Bart had told him about. After changing clothes and dumping the evidence in Lake Conroe, Chris and Stephen went drinking, using the cash they had stolen from Kent's closet to pay their bar tab. Stephen finally detailed a chilling conversation he had with Bart in February 2004 as the two ate in a Woodlands restaurant in Texas. Bart wanted to meet with Stephen to find out what he had told police investigators. And during the conversation, Bart said, quote, the job wasn't finished and started to discuss killing his father, Kent, who was the only survivor of the attack. That's some bullshit right there. Like his whole story's out. You failed. You failed at this multiple times at this point. But now you, he's got his dad, I guess, on his side and he's still trying to get, get him whacked. Like, dude. Yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. Surely you remember that Bart had discussed and even planned killing his family with others in the past. And those guys testified at Bart's trial as well. Will Anthony, Justin Peters, and Adam Hip each testified about their participation in the prior conspiracies to kill the Whitaker family. Bart had sought relationships when each of these guys faced periods of turmoil in their lives. Peters had lost a girlfriend in a car accident, and Hip and Anthony were struggling with grades and eventually were even expelled from their respective schools. Each of them, with the benefit of hindsight and maybe a little maturity as they'd grown up in the years since, could see how uh, Bart recognized and exploited their personal weaknesses. It took the jury less than two hours to find Bart Whitaker guilty of capital murder. But that's not the end. In a case like this, that was just the beginning for the jury. During the punishment phase, Bart's dad and extended family members pleaded with the jury to spare Bart's life. Some of them even offered an explanation for Bart's behavior that the family's expectations had placed too much pressure on Bart and that perhaps he had been given too much too soon. Oh, hell, his silver spoon was so heavy he had to beat people with it. Give me a f***ing break. Yeah, this didn't resonate well with the mostly working-class jurors either. In the end, Bart took the stand during this phase in a final attempt to avoid the death penalty, and, and he tried to contradict the state's claim that money was his motivation for, you know, having his family murdered. Bart testified that he had developed this irrational hatred of his family because he could never fulfill their high expectations of him. And he kind of towed the line with this theory that nobody was buying. And Bart, like so many people who suddenly find themselves on trial or for horrible crimes or at sentencing, said that he had found God while he was in Mexico. Remember? God's hanging out in Mexico? <laughs> Apparently, he's pr probably on the beaches down there would be my guess. I mean, I know God's everywhere, but like, seriously, that just came across as, I found God while I was in Mexico. He was in Tijuana. Yeah, <laughs> on the on the lamb while he was avoiding uh, prosecution for having his family murdered. Right. He also told the jury that he was an entirely new person and was participating in a Bible study at the jail. Then it came time for Bart's cross-examination. The DA took off the kid gloves. He confronted Bart several times regarding his behavior during the police investigation and subsequent trial. Bart would blame his attorneys and blame his co-conspirators or simply stated that he'd changed now after his religious conversion and was an entirely different person. The cross ended with Bart agreeing that he had no reason to hate his family, but he killed them anyway. It would seem that the jury took this portion of the trial very seriously. The only question they had to answer here was whether Bart Whitaker deserved to die for what he had done, but they spent 10 hours deliberating. 
And when the jury indicated they had reached a verdict, they were called into the courtroom. And as they made their way into the jury box, many had tears in their eyes. They sentenced Bart Whitaker to die for the murders of Kevin and Trish Whitaker. Bart appeared to accept the verdict with no emotion. Kent, a man who had already lost so much, flinched when the verdict was read. Kent later told the local media that the verdict was not what he had wished for, but, quote, the Lord was sovereign and that his will had been done. Kent was the penultimate victim in this case. As he watched the last remaining member of his immediate family taken from the Fort Bend County Courthouse to be transferred to death row. That's pretty rough. And unlike, well, I don't want to say that. A lot of people seem to find find Jesus in prison. And I believe Jesus and God, they're in, well, they're everywhere. So it's definitely fantastic when people find faith in difficult circumstances. And we see in the Bible that happens quite a bit. But also, it's uh, a lot of people who claim to find faith when they're behind bars, and you it, it just it's it's hard to believe that sometimes. Whereas with Kent, before this ever happened, was obviously a very spiritual, well connected to the good Lord kind of guy. Yeah, I think that's one of those actions speak louder than words. Right. I mean, look how ironic it is that Kent decided before he knew who the killer was that he had to forgive them. Mm. Like it was already done. Uh, that that's got that can only be God at work there. So that he didn't have a complete freaking meltdown when he found out who it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's not the end of our story. We're not done yet. Oh, wait, let me guess. You're going to tell us about Bart's final vegan meal and what they, what he said before they flipped the switch? Not exactly. Oh, or how he wrote poetry so he got out? No, that's in California. Not exactly. On February 22nd, 2018, 11 years after his conviction, over 14 years after the murder, something happened that shocked just about everybody. Texas Governor Greg Abbott commuted Bart's sentence from death to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Abbott's decision followed a unanimous decision for commutation by the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles. Now, Abbott wasn't just some political figurehead who didn't know anything about criminal justice system or the legal system, the courts, or, or how that all worked. From the statement that he released, he said, quote, As a former trial court judge, Texas Supreme Court Justice and Attorney General involved in prosecuting some of the most notorious criminals in Texas, I have the utmost regard for the role that juries and judges play in our legal system. He went on to say, The role of the governor is not to second-guess the court process or reevaluate the law and evidence. Instead, the governor's role under the Constitution is distinct from the judicial function. The governor's role is to consider recommendations by the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles and view matters through a lens broader than the facts and law apply to a single case. That is particularly important in death penalty cases. And he would continue on to say, in just over three years as governor, I have allowed 30 executions. I have not granted a commutation of a death sentence until now. And he would go on, the murders of Mr. Whitaker's mother and brother are reprehensible. The crime deserves severe punishment for the criminals who killed them. The recommendation of the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles and my action on it ensures Mr. Whitaker will never be released from prison. Kent's continued and impassioned pleas on behalf of his son had a huge impact on the governor's decision. The governor would also say, Mr. Whitaker's father, who survived the attempt on his life, passionately opposes the execution of his son. Mr. Whitaker's father insists that he would be victimized again if the state put to death his last remaining immediate family member. Also, Mr. Whitaker voluntarily and forever waived any and all claims to parole in exchange for commutation of his sentence from death to life without the possibility of parole. Abbott concluded, Mr. Whitaker must spend the remainder of his life behind bars as punishment for this heinous crime. 
Now, Bart's clemency petition, which is the vehicle that got this in front of the Board of Parole and Pardon and, and then ultimately on the governor's desk, was written by an attorney named Keith Hampton out of Austin, Texas. It, it is quite well written and manages to weave the Bible into a legal argument in an uncommon way. Can we just stop there for a second? I know you want to talk about this and that's great, but I got to say when I found this, whatever you call it, motion pleading letter, I don't know what it is. I happened to dig that up somewhere. And as I was reading it, I thought it was unusual to find those biblical references in, in such a document, but I didn't, you know, show my ignorance and say anything. I just kind of sent it off to you. I was thinking, well, I think it's weird, but I don't see these kinds of things all the time. And so when you were like, uh, that was interesting the way he did that. I felt a little vindicated there. I was like, okay, I, I wasn't crazy. That, that is interestingly unusual. Yeah. I would say when you see Bible verses in legal documents, it's almost regularly done in some sort of a cheesy kind of in a way that's like like how uh bart tried to make his plea during the punishment phase to say like well i found faith you know here's a bible verse that everybody's heard since they were five you know this was like a blend of like academic like scholarly and faith very well blended in this document yeah and and that leads perfectly into where i'm going next which is it's worth reading the whole thing so you know if this case is interesting to you you want to read this document we're talking about check it out um i I don't know if can we post it or did you is it publicly available i think so okay well it's probably publicly available and we'll try to make sure we put it up on our social so you can check it out i mean i don't have you know like a email connect to bart or anything so you don't no oh i thought you guys were related yeah i thought he was your parents other child i'm pretty sure i'd be dead if we were related that's true uh so anyway read it's worth reading the whole thing but for the sake of time i just want to read this one part that i thought was particularly poignant and and well done so quoting here it says we know from the bible that god's first decision regarding humankind was to expel adam and eve from the garden of eden god's third decision should be just as instructive god let humanity spring forth from adam and eve but in the face of the first murder god set an example one of adam's sons cain killed adam's other son abel The Bible doesn't detail Adam's grief or shock or bewilderment about what should be done. Like Adam, we can't know Eve's judgment, but we do know that she, like Adam, did not thirst for Cain's death. She did not cry out for his execution as God's answer to her grief. While the details are hidden from us, we do know what God did in the face of it, which perhaps is all we need to know. God did not forgive Cain. God did not kill Cain. God marked Cain for his crime as well as for Cain's own protection and sent him to restlessly wander the world. This board has the power to recommend the same fate for Thomas Bart Whitaker as God imposed upon Cain. Commutation means that we as a society do not forgive or execute Bart Whitaker. We will instead mark him to wander his own mind within the desolation of his own cell, and this punishment will continue until God decides otherwise. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode.